Scripture reading will be Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. And the word reads, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Amen. Perhaps you've heard uh, the question asked or the analogy used. Um, the question is, is often posed is the Christian life uh, like, can it be compared to a cruise ship or a battleship? Is the Christian life a life full of luxury and hanging out by the pool and having all-you-can-eat buffets? Or is the Christian life more likened to that of, 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 of war, of, of a fight, of a, of a battle, and, and that there is a struggle in the Christian life? Well, I think the scriptures uh, answer that question for us. The Christian life is a battle. I mean, you can't escape the military language that the scriptures use to describe our walk as Christians and how we ought to engage with this world. The Apostle Paul says to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and 4 that he is not to get involved in civilian affairs, but like a good soldier... He is to share in the suffering of Christ, military language. We, we are referred to soldiers, but also our, our chief weapon, one of our chief weapons, is, uh, the Bible is referred to as a sword. You see, we can't escape the reality that to be a Christian is to be at, at war. We're at war against the the, the world, uh, the flesh, and, and the devil. These are our formidable opponents whose end goal is our destruction. So, so whether you, you realize it or, or not, Christian, you and I are in a fight. When Christ saved you, you were enlisted into his army. Here's the question. Are you engaged in the fight or are you sitting on the sideline? Paul's final instructions to the Colossians as he begins to, to bring this letter to a close is an appeal for the saints to engage the mission. Engage the mission. He wants them to fight. He's urging, he's urging these saints to join him and to, to take up their weapons and to do battle. But for the, for the Christians, the weapons we engage the enemy with are not physical swords, nor are they guns, nor are they bombs or fighter jets. That is not that is how the world says we ought to fight. That we ought to fight with physical weapons that do physical 
harm or, or deal physical blows to the enemy, but that is not how the Christian is called to do battle. No, the weapons that we implore are spiritual. 2 Corinthians 10 and 4 tells us this, for the, for the weapons of our warfare are not uh, are, 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 are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The old King James Version says that our weapons are not carnal. They're not worldly. As Christians, we do not pick up guns and swords. We take hold of the divine power that we have access to to do battle. And note, brothers and sisters, these weapons that we have do not put us at a disadvantage. In fact, they put us at an advantage. This is not like bringing a knife to a gunfight. No, brothers and sisters, we are at, in the advantage. We have access to divine power that puts an end to strongholds. Paul tells the Colossians, Pick up their weapons and get engaged. And what are these weapons? What are these weapons that Paul encourages these Colossians to pick up and to employ? Christians are to engage the enemy with prayer and with their testimony. With prayer and with their testimony. We are to engage Prayer, Colossians 2, start of our text says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, right alongside of the, the, the word, the, the greatest weapon you and I have against the enemy is prayer. You and I have the ear, the ear of Almighty God. He who controls all things. He who owns all things and has every resource available to him to accomplish his plans, purposes, and mission in the world. This is the God whom we pray to. You and I are not at an advantage because of our intellect and our reason. Victory isn't assured because we have money. What grants Christians the upper hand in this war is the fact that God hears us when we pray, and it's his battle to fight. Psalm 20, verse 7 reminds us of this. Some, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we as Christians trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our weapons are not carnal. They are spiritual. I would venture to say, unfortunately, that most of us don't believe this. We don't believe that prayer is our greatest weapon. How do, I, how do I, I know this? Because usually prayer is the last weapon we grab. Our actions show or display for us that we are often 
trusting in chariots, and we are often trusting in horses. We, we're dealing with the blows of the world and, and of our flesh and, and, and of our enemy. And it's, and it's only after we've exhausted every resource, we, we've emptied all of our pockets, talked to everybody else and tried to get everybody else on our side, that we then begin to bend the ear of the Lord. It's the only time we, it's at the end of our fighting and our resources that we go to the Lord. Now, Paul tells the Colossians that they are to continue steadfastly in prayer. Other versions tell us, say that um, they are to devote themselves, devote themselves to, to prayer. Paul is urging Christians to make prayer our go-to weapon. In other words, it should be our default. That when, 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 we, when the enemy and, and the, uh, the devil and the world is raging against us, our default is prayer. We are to give ourselves over to it. That is what it means to devote yourself to prayer. It is a reliance on God for all things. To, to devote yourself to prayer is to be keenly aware that without God, without Christ, you can do nothing. You know what prayer reveals? It reveals a self. Uh, uh, neglecting prayer, when you neglect prayer, it reveals a self-reliance. Your actions are proving that your trust lies elsewhere. Do you realize that you and I can't do battle on our own? Paul tells the Ephesians this in Ephesians 6 and 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do battle by prayer. We don't, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. You know who believed this? The early church believed this. You read through the book of Acts, you, you clearly see that the church, the early church knew that prayer was their greatest weapon. They devoted themselves to prayer. That's what we're told in Acts chapter 2. And any opposition they faced, it drove them to pray for boldness. When, when, when there was a persecution facing them, their, their first response was to pray for boldness. Any victory they experienced, they prayed and, and thanked God for his provision. When they needed wisdom and they needed direction, where did they turn? They turned to the Lord in prayer. Our first century brothers and sisters 
were fully convinced. They believed that if they were going to have any success in this mission that the Lord had called them to, they were going to need to make prayer their utmost priority. This is how this is how we engage the enemy. We engage the enemy by beseeching the Father. But Paul, he doesn't just tell the Colossians to use the weapons. He instructs them on how they are to use the weapons. He says to them, when you pray, be watchful. Be watchful when you pray. Brother, brothers and sisters, this, this imperative solidifies the fact that prayer is a wartime activity. When you pray, you need to be alert. You need to be on guard. You need to be awake. <laughs> you remember what Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right before he was, he was going to pray to the Lord and he was b- about to go to the cross and he tells his disciples to pray. And he comes back and what does he find them doing? Finds them, them sleeping. And he says, watch, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, Jesus knew the gravity of the situation. Spiritual warfare was raging, and Jesus commanded his disciples to stay alert and to pray. They were to be mindful, to be mindful of the devil's schemes. Peter's charge is helpful here. Perhaps he was remembering the lesson he learned in the garden when he says in 1 Peter 5 and 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Oh, we need to be watchful. When praying, you and I need to be aware that the evil one doesn't want us to pray. This is why we need to fight to do it. You and I need to press through the distractions. We, 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 need, to, we need to shake off the sleepiness. We, we need to make sure we don't let our minds wander. You realize those things are not coincidences. Remember, spiritual warfare is going on when we, when we pray. All the flesh and the spirit are at war. The spirit is willing Oh, but the flesh is weak. Fight. Fight to pray. Oh, we ought, we ought to be aware of the evil one. Watchful so that we might not enter into temptation. But you realize that this, that this alertness doesn't just have to do with, with, with watching for the evil one. It has to do with being mindful and having an awareness of the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ around us. That as we pray, we ought to be be aware of the needs in our community. Prayer is not just this, this this mindless meditation. When we when we pray, 
We are not emptying our minds in order to enter into some blissful state. Prayer is work. Prayer is engaging the mission with and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 6 and 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. Keep alert with all perseverance. Doing what? Making supplication for all the saints. That this alertness, this awareness in prayer, being watchful, is so that you are praying and, 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 and going before the Father with your brothers and sisters' needs. Oh, this should be a reminder that if I am watchful in prayer, there is always something to pray about. You can't, you can't ever use the excuse that there is nothing to pray about. In fact, I think this is why Paul could say, uh, and, 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 and say it without any apprehension, um, he's not using hyperbole here. He is, he is actually meaning what he says when he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Paul is saying that as a Christian, our dependence, everything that we do is, 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 the term is, on, uh, is depends on the Lord. Our dependence is on him. We ought to live our lives like that. We ought to interact with our brothers and sisters knowing that truth. Everything. We take everything to God in prayer. Everything. Be watchful in prayer, Paul says. But also our prayers ought to be drenched with thanksgiving. That should be the attitude of your heart. Gratitude. Gratitude. Unfortunately, the tenor of our prayers are often filled with more requests than thanksgiving. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We just sang the song, we have a good, good father. He is indeed a good, good father. And he delights to give his children good gifts. And he, he bids us, he bids us to come and to, to ask whatever we would ask of him. He is a loving father and wants to do that. But, but is your asking like that of a spoiled child? who makes demands, who thinks they are owed something. I want, I want, I want. Can I, can I have, can I have, can I have? Demanding that your requests be met, and if they aren't met, then you throw a temper tantrum. That is not the attitude that should be marking out Christians' prayers. We we ought to ask as those who are eternally grateful for all the blessings that we already have and humbled that God offers to give us more. Humbled that he would allow us to, to, to bend his ear and take those prayers and use them as part of fulfilling his plan and his mission in the world. That's how we ought to go to the Lord in prayer. With thanksgiving in our heart. Oh, we have 
been blessed with numerous blessings. So thankfulness ought to be our attitude. You say, what blessings? Well, that is what Paul has been unpacking throughout the first half of his letter, has he not? Our thanksgiving is grounded, it's rooted in the good news that God loved us and gave himself up for us. This love that we were just singing about, no greater love, is rooted there. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Paul tells us, Therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Doing what? Abounding in thanksgiving. Paul also tells the Thessalonians to be thankful in all things. A Christian life is a life of thankfulness to God. It can be summed up in that, in that regard. It is, it is thankfulness to God. Commands in Scripture to be thankful are endless. And though not fully adequate, it just feels like you just need, it, it just doesn't seem like it's enough. The psalm, like the songwriter says, oh, if I had a thousand tongues to thank you and to praise you, it still wouldn't be enough. It seems like our thanksgiving, just saying thank you, isn't adequate enough. But that is the response. That is the response of a saint who's seen their sin, known that they needed to receive punishment for that sin. The good Father was gracious to them. He gave them Jesus, covered all their sins, invited them home. They're sitting at his table, dining and feasting. The song says, Jesus, thank you. Oh, that's why I love the songs. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemies now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Give thanks. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks to, to Jesus Christ. Give thanks. Oh, they are simple songs, but they do a, they just do a wonderful job of, of communicating and, and expressing what the, Christian life, what the Christian's attitude should be. Thankful. We pray. Be thankful. Be watchful. When you do that, you are engaging the mission. But even more, even more than that, when we pray that the gospel would advance through those carrying it, we are taking dead aim at the enemy. Paul asked the Colossians to pray for them. He says, pray for us. When we were going through 1 Thessalonians, you might remember, Paul made the same request of the saints in Thessalonica. And, and I remember Pastor Tony helping us to see the weight of such a request. That here is the Apostle Paul, this great missionary, this, this apostle who has been commissioned by God. He's got this strong team. I mean, he's got Timothy with him. He's got Titus. And they've been on this missionary journey, planting churches, having great success, having great victory, and yet here they are asking the saints 
to pray for them. Hmm, does Paul ask of this? Ask this of them to fill up space in the letter? Or just a, a throwaway imperative for the Colossians to do? I am convinced. I am convinced that the reason why Paul makes this request of the saints in Colossae and all the other churches that he made this request to, I am convinced that he made this request because he fully believes that prayer works. Paul needed the prayers of the saints. He recognized that if the gospel was going to go forward, if it was going to make any headway, if the mission was going to be accomplished, the church was going to need to engage with its most potent weapon, prayer. The saints were going to need to pray. Paul says, pray for us. Pray for, pray for us. This was Jesus' instructions to his disciples. In Matthew 9 and 38, he looks out and he sees all these sheep and he has compassion on them because they look like lost sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, there's a problem. What are we to do? Pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Prayer works, brothers and sisters. It works. Prayer works. It breaks strongholds. It, it opens up doors. It softens hearts. I wish we would believe this. I think if we did, we would pray more and we would ask for, for prayer more. We believe like Elijah believed, who James says prayed fervently. He had a nature like ours, like you and mine, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Imagine if we believed like Elijah believed. When a prayer meeting was called, the whole church would show up. It wouldn't be the least attended uh, activity that the church did. If you believed that prayer worked, that it was our greatest weapon, when prayer was called, you would show up because you would have an expectation that the Lord was going to do something through your feeble attempts at prayer. Paul asks for prayer from the saints because he believes that prayer works. But what is also instructive is what Paul asked the saints to pray for. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter to Colossae. He's in prison. It's believed that Paul actually also had some type of physical ailment that he was dealing with. But when Paul asks the Colossians to pray, he doesn't ask them to pray that he would be released from prison. He doesn't ask that, that, they would, that, 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 that God would heal him. No, he asks that they pray that an open door for the gospel 
would be made open. That God would would open the doors, that he would give them clarity in the, the gospel that would be proclaimed. Oh, how instructive for us. Listen, yes, praying for a healing and for jobs and for material blessings is okay. But if we are going to engage the mission, we need to be praying that the gospel would advance. Listen, having, if we're going to have an impact here in River Park, if we're going to have an impact in the, the world, it's not going to happen because our, our, our prayers are so inwardly focused. No, we need to be praying that, Lord, as we enter into this community, as we, as we walk the streets, as we meet people, would you open up their hearts? Would you prepare the soil that, that you would give us clarity of speech, winsome talk, so that when we proclaim the gospel, it might fall on good ground, Lord? Because only you can do a work in this community. Only you can change hearts. Only you can open up the doors. That's what we need to be praying, saints. That's a prayer that engages the mission. I find it, find it really telling, and I'm still researching this, and I, I may be wrong, but I, I find it really interesting that Paul never asked for money. Mission work needed to take place, and his number one request was never money. But he sure did ask for prayer. He wasn't shy about asking for prayer. Prayer is the church's greatest weapon to engage the mission. Yes, money is needed. Don't get me wrong. Give, give, we need to give money. Resources are necessary, are necessary piece of taking the gospel to River Park, to Atlanta, and to the, the nations. We need resources. We need money. We, we need those things. But you can have all the money and the resources you want, and without prayer, it would be in vain. But if you pray, the little money and resources you do have, God is able to powerfully work through those little means because the mission is his. Oh, ask the boy with the, with the little fish and the, and, the, and the loaves. Prayer works, brothers and sisters. I remember having the privilege of going on a missions trip to, to Panama and the team, before we uh, were about to uh, go out and, and go to our various areas, a team was going to stay in the city and a team was going to go into the mountains of Panama. And I remember clear as day, you cannot tell me any different, but we stood in a circle. And we prayed that the Lord would open up doors. And you could not tell me for a say, call it emotional, call it whatever. I know that Jesus was there. Holy Spirit was blowing, and he was, he was granting to us open doors because the saints were praying. They were praying. Prayer works, brothers and sisters. We engage the mission with prayer. Not only do we engage it with prayer, we engage the mission with our testimony. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, 
Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, essentially, essentially what, what Paul is saying here is keep your testimony. Your conduct matters. Someone has said, preach the gospel with your life and use words only when necessary. Well, that is unbiblical. Paul says in Romans 10, Paul says in Romans 10 that in order to believe the gospel, someone needs to preach it. The gospel is a message that is to be proclaimed, it is to be heard, and it is to be received. But while that statement is unbiblical and in many ways unhelpful, we shouldn't miss the, the point attempting to be made. How you live and interact with unbelievers is not irrelevant to sharing the gospel. Listen, someone, someone is not going to believe the gospel simply because you are kind to them. You saying please and thank you and, and opening up the door to someone, I, I don't know, I don't know of anybody who I opened the door for and they said, how do I believe on Jesus, right? Being kind, right? If I, if I, I need to open up my mouth and, and share, share, the, share the gospel. Nobody, nobody gets saved simply by you just being kind to them. But your kindness may grant you a hearing with them so that, so that you can share Jesus with them. You know, much of the world already thinks that Christians are hypocrites. And your attitudes and harsh words or tone only gives them more fodder for their misguided beliefs. You engage the mission by conducting lives that reflect Jesus. And Paul gives the Colossians some action items to help them in this manner. He says, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. At the beginning of the letter, this was Paul's prayer to the Colossians. It was that they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom, that, that knowledge and understanding would, would be apparent, but that those two virtues would, would culminate in wisdom. You may ask, what does this, does this wisdom look like? Well, I think James is helpful in this regard. James 3, 13 17, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him sh show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heads, do not boast about and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
been peaceable, gentle, open in reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and, and, and sincere. How do you walk in wisdom? Do what James says. Walking in wisdom towards outsiders looks like pursuing peace with outsiders. It'd be being pure and, and kind and, and gentle and open to, to reason, full of mercy and, and good, good fruits. Outsiders should, should not know you as the one who is always stirring up trouble. trouble. If there is a controversy, are you the one that's always up in the mix, causing division? God's people are peacemakers. Peacemakers. Romans 12, 18, if possible, if possible. So far as it depends on you, what are you to do? Live peaceably with all. That's believers and unbelievers. That's what all means there. Believers and unbelievers. We keep our testimony by walking in wisdom, but also by making the best use of the time. We are, to, we are to live carpe diem, seizing the day. You know, time management plagues us all. We, we are each allotted the same amount of time in a day, 24 hours. Nobody gets any more. Nobody gets any less. It's how we spend that time that matters. I am convinced that we keep our testimony and engage the mission by using our time to accomplish good works. To accomplish good works. You want to know how to make the best use of your time? Pursue good works. Matthew 5 and 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are good works that the Lord has prepared in advance for us to do so that outsiders may see him and glorify and honor him. You may ask, well, what is a good work? And I would answer, that which is helpful and that which is useful. Helpful and useful is how you are using your time helpful to others? Is it, is it helping them on to Christ? 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Our, our time should be spent seeking to build up others, seek, seeking to point them and, and, and propel them onto onto. Christ. Huh? But also, a good work is that which is useful, helpful and useful. Are you using your time to be available to those who can use your good works? 2 Timothy 2.21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Useful to the master. 
You are, a, you are a vessel, a vessel set apart for honorable use. So, so be ready. When idle time comes, seek to be available and ready for good works. Oh, we are to be helpful. We are to be useful. We are to seize the opportunity, seize the days. You, you know how we best seize the days? That when we have an opportunity, we share the gospel. That's being helpful. That is being useful. Seizing the opportunity with our good works. We got to walk in wisdom, make the best use of the time. And lastly, you ought to let your speech always be gracious. We perhaps shouldn't have to be reminded, but maybe, 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 maybe we do. How you communicate to others, your tone, choice of words, disposition, all have consequences. And look, this, this pertains to Facebook and Twitter as well. Just because you are not looking the person in the eye doesn't mean that your words are now neutral. We have all learned by now that the proverb, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you, is untrue. Words hurt. Words sting. Like James says, this little member in our mouths is hard to control and left unchecked can set a forest ablaze. Oh, we, we already explored the hindrances it can bring to the gospel being heard, and that is Paul's point with this last exhortation. Our, our speech needs, needs to be gracious. It, it needs to be seasoned with salt so that so that when we share with unbelievers, it can be heard. The message we, we have can be heard. Ravi Zacharias makes, makes a great point or has a great illustration here. He says, how can a person smell the sweet rose we are about to present them if we first cut off their nose? Well, how... How we communicate to others is important. Not just because we want others to think highly of us and say, oh, oh, there's a nice group of people. Oh, they're nice. They, they treat me kind. I'm encouraged when I leave them. No, yes, that's important. We want others to think well of us. But the goal is that there would be an opportunity to share the reason for the hope that we have. That, that when they ask, I can tell them why I'm so gracious. Why my words come across sweetly to them. We engage the mission by our testimonies, the words that we, that we proclaim. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 communicates this clearly to us, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's how we, that's how we engage. That's how we engage the mission with, with our testimony, our, our good conduct, provides avenues for gospel proclamation. And when you are proclaiming the gospel, you are engaging the mission. That is powerful. Listen to what John speaks of the martyrs in Revelation 12 and 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives even unto death. Oh, we engage. We engage the mission with, with prayer and with our testimony. Oh, if you are, if you are not doing these things, my, my plea to you this morning is to engage the mission. Get off, get off the sideline. Get, get, get in the game. There are blessings that await you. These exhortations from Paul are as much to us and to you as they were to the saints in Colossae. Oh, there are blessings that await. Yes, the, the, the war is difficult. There will, you will be, be wounded. You won't die. Oh, difficult. But I, I implore you to engage the mission with prayer and with your testimony. And if, on the other hand, you are engaged in this mission, if, on the other hand, you are here, brothers and sisters, and you are continuing steadfastly in prayer, and you are seeking to, to mind your testimony, well then, praise God for you. Don't stop. Keep pressing. Keep pressing on. Keep fighting. We have many, many miles to go before we rest. But get this, be encouraged that as you fight, as you strive, as you pray, as you be, uh, are mindful of your testimony, oh, the victory has been won. Oh, we fight, we march, we march on but we march on to victory because God has won the battle. Engage the mission, brothers and sisters. Engage the mission. Be steadfast in prayer and mind your testimony. Let's pray.